Jane has disappeared, and up she came. It's a miracle. It's a thumb, and we are now off and running. I should say very fast for you poor folks on the Internet. You're probably going to get this a couple of days late at best, but Dave and Terry are feigning illness if they really exist. I get a big kick out of that. Uh, all of you write that all the time. That is the addendum to whenever you say Supper Dave, if he really exists. Um, but in any event, they are both sick, pretending to be sick, and we're cutting their salaries, for those of you who <laughs> I don't have anything to talk to on the Internet today. But definitely that's what we're going to do. I mean, what option do we have? It's insubordination. <sighs> we are hoping to take pictures of the board, if you're listening to this. And how else could you listen to it but to listen to it? Because there's no video. I'll get this figured out eventually. So it is February 17, 2019, lecture discussion number 53 on the book of Joel. And, uh, well, now, last Sunday, we began our venture into the ownership of one man by another man. The possession, possession, the possessing of living beings and reducing that someone who is possessed by possessing owned Reducing the owned person to a property status, that becomes important uh, in, in uh, understanding what Scripture says about this. And I defined it as an utter, as the utter violation of the Eighth Commandment, Exodus 20:15. To rephrase that a little bit, a more definitive fashion. I am asserting that there can be no greater desecration of the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal, than to enslave, steal the personhood of another. That's my assertion, my thesis, if you will. And why do I think that's so? How can I defend it? What is my defense of that? And obviously, placing another one, another person, into a slavery uh, condition through force returns the students of Scripture to Genesis 3. That's where we start. Always we seem to start there. What a coincidence. It's Satan's premise that God has not given existence. As you know, that humanity has no free will. He, humanity only has a state of automation. Uh, and, and it's waiting to be revealed as a state of automation. Automatons do not have life. Do you see the connection to slavery? Nor a, a eternal hope. Automatons have nothing, essentially. They don't have personhood. If you believe that human beings cease to exist uh, upon physical death, then you have placed them into an automatonic condition. A robotic condition. And life, as God defines life, is the opposite of that. It is eternal life as opposed to eternal death. God has has definitions of eternal life that include him. And eternal death excludes him, as you know. The distinction is the locality, the destination. But that's another day. I've done that hundreds of times. But I have to bring it up because I hope you can see, I'll say this a lot, how it ties into slavery. Especially the rationalization for enslaving someone and destroying their autonomy. 
their sovereignty over themselves. But again, another day. Hopefully, you can start to recognize the connectivity between the stealing of freedom and the issues of Genesis 3, or the Eighth Commandment in Genesis 3. If there's one commandment that goes back to Genesis 3, it is the Eighth Commandment. But I make the case that all of them do. That wouldn't surprise anybody. So to re-answer my question of a couple of weeks ago, I asked, why doesn't the Ten Commandments prohibit slavery? And obviously that was another one of my diabolically worded questions. And you should expect that here at beautiful downtown Cliffside, which is neither beautiful downtown or anywhere near a cliff. Thank goodness we're up to 12,000 aftershocks now. Pretty soon we could very well be on a cliff. Overlooking the inlet. At the rate we're going, it's more likely than not. Anyway, before we return to the complexities of slavery, and that again, I'm being, what's the word I want? Obtuse. Before we return to the complexities of slavery, or why the Bible has seemingly shaded representations of slavery conditions, it does not, but for many it seems to be the case, uh, I uh, received a, a question from Ralph that actually harmonizes with the subject that we have at hand. So I got a couple of letters this week, but one from Ralph. Dear Pastor, he says... Before God created heaven and earth, before he created angels, before he created anything, where was he and what was he doing? My name is Ralph from the greatest country in the world, uh, Manorcow, New Zealand. Answer me that dude on tape would be nice. Mm-hmm. For those of you who are convinced that me, the religious professional, is a staid geriatric with no appeal to the younger audiences, well, along comes a letter from Ralph. I wish I was on video. I could be demonstrating. I'll wave it in front of the sound. Let the record show that I have a letter from Ralph from Manorcow, New Zealand, who becomes now my most favorite in all of New Zealand. Uh, it is a it is a powerful rebuttal. I would say cancellation, wouldn't I? I will of such the uh, accusatory premise that premises. There are many that I cannot communicate with the hip and happening crowd, which I'm obviously doing. I'm nouvelle. Some would say stylish. Look at me. Stylish just screams off of me. It's amazing. This evidence, Ralph's reference to what is clearly my new title, actually not new, it's a title within the vast Internet audience. That is fantastic. I don't know if you noticed my title, but let me put it up there for you. Uh, It's got to go on the board, but there's no video, so we're going to have to take a picture of it. Oops, I got it wrong, didn't I? Because there's a definitive article. There we go. I am clearly the answer me that dude. <laughs> That's fantastic. 
Now, I recognize that Ralph might not mean to call me the answer me that dude, but he did. There's no punctuation here. It's all answer me that dude. So that's me, I'm sure. But if he didn't actually mean it, well, that that would be unfortunate uh, as uh, I've ordered new business cards already. Uh, it's a bulk order. I'm getting them by the by the semi tractor if I can get them. And, and also I got thousands of uh, the answer me that dude T-shirts and coffee mugs uh, in the pipeline and hats and I'll blanket the country with them. I Look at the potential. New Zealand. I'm first sending them to New Zealand, maybe Australia. That seems to be a market for me. And I imagine the demand will be, will, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> will far outstrip our manufacturing capacity, especially since we have no manufacturing capacity. Anyway, you gotta admit, the answer me that dude is an impressive uh, christening. I, I am delighted in it. And again, it's corroborative of my appeal to the millennial generation, a stinging rebuke to those of you who believe that chronister is a derivation of anachronistic. I should put it on. I said, I said, here, check, look up the spelling, but uh, I will put it up here for you. People think that's where Chronister came from. Ha! Again, evidence to the contrary. You can look up the meaning and check the spelling. You have phones. Okay, Ralph begins with before God created, using the phrase three times. He says before God created heaven, before God created angels, before he created anything, where was he? Where was God? What was God doing? That's the that's the the nexus, if you will. That's the entirety also. And that is his question. And I've emphasized, I hope I did, before God created, before God he created, before he created, where was he? What was he different or what was he doing? And I tried to emphasize that before and was because both of those are what? Those are time references. They're referring to a time period. <coughs> oh, excuse me. <coughs> so initially, it's necessary to address the attributes of time. Everyone's favorite. By everyone, I mean me. But that's the question. And as you know, many, many people err here. But not Ralph. Ralph actually worded it reasonably. But many err by presupposing that time has supremacy. You see this in the form of, if God made everything, who made God? That is saying that time has supremacy over God. Or what was before God? Ralph didn't make that mistake. But those are commonly done, and both of those types of questions assume that time has preeminence. It's in authority. And, that, and thus, it, it's a logical flaw. The Bible describes time as a created entity with a beginning. The beginning of time is identified as an actual event. We say it all the time, don't we? We say from the beginning of time because we recognize that there is a beginning to time. Where do we get that from? Well, that's a scriptural that's a scriptural premise, and not premise, it's a scriptural truth. And I'm aware of the concepts of, so don't write me, of imaginary time. We have imaginary time in physics, and we have negative time. 
So I'm aware of those. Again, everyone hates these time discussions as it is, and I try not to worsen the situation if I can. So I'm going to leave that as to the side. I'm going to tell Ralph, Ralph, as I've begun this, that the sound that you're hearing in New Zealand is people all over the world turning off this lecture. <laughs> That's the way it is. The point is, is yea, a point. God cannot be described as made. He is the unmade, uncreated one. He's unmade, uncreated. That's his definition. That's the definition of God. Nor can he be placed in subordination to time. That's an invalid uh, proposal. Because in addition to being the unmade one, all things, including time, consist in Christ Jesus. That's Colossians 1:15 through 18. I've read it recently. It bears reading again. I've said when I read it, if you've got one verse memorized in the New Testament, this is probably the one you should have. Here it goes. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. That's a big deal. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in all things, he may have preeminence. All things. Time is a thing. All things are created by him, through him, and he is before all things. Again, time is a thing. He is before time. And all things reside. They are inside of him. They exist. Existence is inside of him. And that is how Christ describes himself in Revelation 1 through 3. If you read 1 through 3 of Revelation, you'll see that it fits, it dovetails beautifully with Colossians 1, 15 through 18. So with that established now, God instituted time and he created time and he created time simultaneous. I've got to find the tip of this thing. I keep grabbing the wrong end of my pen. He created Time simultaneous with energy, space, and matter. So it is important for you to know energy, space. I'm going to put matter after space because everyone wants to put space-time together, which is not necessarily uh, illegitimate, but I'll put it off to the side so that you'll recognize there's a distinction between space and time. Not everyone will accept my analysis of that. We have energy, space, matter, and time, and that is the created order. And just as an aside here, time is not as readily conceived as the others in the created order. Time has been described as a kind of space. It doesn't have physicality. The phrase space and duration, which is space and time, the phrase, you'll see this all, all the time. <laughs> space and duration are connected. They're unified, they will tell you. That's commonly expressed that way. 
Time and consciousness likewise have a relationship, as you might remember. Einstein's position that there is no uh, time is just a construction of a human consciousness. And I won't go into that again. More people are turning off of the lecture. It, but it bears mentioning that many people on the Internet travel by the little cliffside lemonade stand here. And they grab something and they move on. They barely sample the products. They get maybe one lecture. So I feel pressure to repeat the major subjects as much as I can get away with it. So I'm doing it again. Do you know what, um, just to give you an idea, I made the comment maybe two or three months ago that infinity must come from infinity. And, and I think that is an obvious truth. That got a terrific response. I, I never know what's going to going to get a response. I just do my job and see what happens. But when you begin to say things like that, Christ identifies Himself as being the Creator of time, which He does, Revelation one three. He does it consistently. People never have heard that before in the church. They don't think it's they don't even consider it to be something the church would discuss. However, the opposite is true. It's critically important. Anyway, God is outside of the created order. So Ralph is addressing the definition of nothing. Does that make sense? Because he's assuming that there is nothing before the created order. However, he thought that time or he presented time. He didn't really, but most do. Most present time as before the created order, and so we end up in this discussion of void zero and void one again. More computers are now moving to YouTube right there. And, and, and whenever you're talking about the subjects, of course, you're also talking about the first and second laws of thermodynamics. In this case, the first law of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics says that energy or matter, neither energy or matter can be destroyed or created now. Let me repeat that better. First law of thermodynamics says that energy or matter cannot be created or destroyed now. Which brings forth the obvious question. If there is no material process that exists in the universe now, that can create or destroy energy or matter, then there is no physical process that can explain the existence of energy and matter. Did that make sense to you? If I have no process right now that can create or destroy energy or matter, first law of thermodynamics, then I cannot have a physical process that can account for the existence of energy and matter. Therefore, what's left? The only possibility, the only origin of energy and matter must come from a non-material source. Which is what? A spiritual source. That is why God says to you in John 4.24, you must worship me as spirit. Because the, only the spiritual can create and destroy matter. And he won't. We'll get into the reorganization of matter and energy at another time. <laughs> I'm so good at that. 
Anyway, it then follows that time is inexorably linked to matter, energy, and space. Time exists with matter, energy, and space. It is, has equality in the sense that it was created simultaneously with matter, energy, and space. Time is displayed by change. I hope you remember that. Either uh, a high energy state or a, I'm sorry, a high entropy state or a low entropy state. Remember the discussions on entropy? The universe must be in existence in order for entropy to be observable. So let me go back over that. Time requires that we have high entropy or low entropy. High entropy, of course, is chaotic. It is simpleness. Low entropy is complexity, high complexity. In order to have entropy, I have to have what? I have to have energy, matter, and space. And it is the, it is the transition into high or low entropy states that displays time. So there cannot be time unless I have energy, space, and matter. Hopefully that makes some sense to somebody, maybe Ralph, I hope. And if the universe is in a low entropy state, which is high complexity, then what is required to do that? A tremendous amount of energy. And I would argue intelligent agency or intelligent consciousness to put something into a complex state. Now, evolution disagrees. They think complex states can be uh, acquired by a process that is not complex. It is not intelligent. And that, of course, I believe is senselessness. But I want you to consider the requirement to put the universe into low entropy or high complexity. Low entropy is, would take a ridiculous, unimaginable amount of power. And who can put the universe into a low entropy state? Quickly, on to void zero and void one. Void zero is nothing. Void one is also nothing. The first rule, whenever you're looking at void zero and void one, are nothingness, is it is important, rule one, it's important not to confuse nothing with nothing. If you think that void zero nothing is the same as void one nothing, then you're confusing void zero with void one, and you're confusing nothing with nothing. And you cannot confuse nothing with nothing. That is an error. Glad I could make that clear. Second rule, you must decide if nothing exists. Is there such a thing as nothing? You can imagine nothing. If you can imagine it, can it, does it have validity as to its existence? If it's unimaginable, what is that, what is the consequences, the implications to its existence? So I want you to decide, decide if nothing exists. Or to word it another way, is nothing something? Again, I'm glad I could clear that up. Have you decided that nothing is nothing? And if you have decided that nothing is nothing, is it void zero nothing or is it void one nothing? Don't confuse your nothings. Is nothing something? Or is it not something? Is nothing nothing? 
And I'll agree that the most popular definitions that void uh, of all of this is that void zero is without physical or material properties. And therefore can only be described theologically, because here we have he didn't ask it this way. He said before God created heavens and earth, before he created angels, before he created energy, space, matter and time. He didn't ask that. He said, where was he? Okay, that is not a valid question. I'll explain why. Where was infinity? Can you put infinity into a place? If you put it into a place, what have you done to infinity? You've rendered it non-infinity. Now, I'm going to tell you that void zero is, is without energy, space, matter, or time. And therefore, it cannot be described physically because these are all physical. You make the case that time is not physical, but it is displayed by physicality, entropy. If void zero is without physical or material properties, then the only way to describe void zero is what? Theologically. If you wish, spiritually. It's a spiritual concept. The Bible calls void zero... Nothing, and what it means is eternity. Eternity has no time. And I can't call eternity a place. Again, eternity is infinite. It has singularity. Remember all of that? Which means that I cannot describe it as a place. Void one is entirely within the created universe. Void zero is a non-physical spiritual framework from which the material universe was spoken into existence, Genesis 1.1. He spoke it in from nothing into existence. Ralph, therefore, when he asks about where was God before he created a physical creation, well, God is in a spiritual framework that is eternal. And it must be infinite. And you can't define it as a place because as a place, when you make it a place, you have restricted it. So to recap, all things are inside of the infinite God. All things are. All matter, all energy, all space, and all of time, all of the created order is inside of Jesus Christ. He says so. And we, being inside of time, we say was. He is the I am, and he is. Where is God? What is God? Never what was, where where was. Where is, what is God doing? Jesus Christ, the I am, that the I am present tense is. Jesus Christ is. All of time, it consists in him. He is above time. He, time has an origin. It is created by the is. The question a long time ago, what is the definition of is? Remember that? We had a corrupt president who seems to have remained corrupt for his entire life. That's a political statement. I'm not allowed to say political statements. I'll be thrown off of different formats. Fortunately, I don't care. It can't affect me. But in any event, 
The question was, that depends on the definition of what is, is. Well, is will take you to an outside-of-time creator, which is who is Christ. Christ has no origin. Time has an origin. It is created. Christ has no origin. God is uncreated. That's why I say to you when it says that Melchizedek is without beginning, well, that is a time reference. And that means that he is Christ. He is, he is uh, the invisible made visible. Genesis 14. The universe, void one, is finite. Christ is infinite. So I want you to do a thought experiment. I want you to imagine the size of the infinite. Okay, and then I want you to imagine the size of the finite. The universe is finite. So I'm going to make a diagram. Uh, I'm going to say to you that infinite is this white board, which is a logical fallacy, right? And then I will give you the universe in it. Okay, I'm going to do it right here. Here I'm going to draw the universe because I am artistically amazing. And this is very complicated. Drawing the universe. I have 200 sextillion stars to draw. And I've done it. Oops, I did it wrong. I have to fix it. Okay. Yeah, there, there it is. There is the universe inside of God. Right. Ooh, I should sell that. In fact, it's been sold, but it's never been titled correctly, has it? I could call it Void Zero and the Universe. The point is, is compare the size of the finite universe with the size of infinity, and you recognize the universe is a speck, and we are a speck on a speck that's in a speck. That's us in case you're starting to become proud of your accomplishments. I am the greatest speck of all the specks. (laughs) Oh, golly. I'm glad there's no video of this today. I thought about wearing an old flannel shirt today once I found out I could get away with it. Oh, wait a minute. I do that anyway. Okay, how big is infinity? Clearly, the question is illogical. Infinity is a non-physical concept. It can only be described spiritually or theologically. And this is fundamentally a discussion then of consciousness, isn't it? Infinity and existence. When consciousness is God's consciousness, then it has no origin. His consciousness is infinite. His existence is infinite. So this is Ralph's subject. This is the kind of letters we get. Isn't that fantastic? It's fantastic. I've attempted, Ralph, I hope I threw as many pieces at it as I could. I've attempted to include as many pieces as possible. I hope it was helpful. Probably not. Because if I start becoming helpful... Well, that'll be the end of me. Quickly, I got another question that came in on Sodom. Uh, uh, this is uh, uh, from a gentleman. This is, uh, uh, oh, Sherman. This is from Sherman. Uh, he asked, why is Sodom described 
by God in Genesis 13 as exceedingly wicked. That's not what he asked. He said, uh, I've been involved with ministry people. Uh, let's see. My question is, where does Pastor Chronister tie uh, uh, DNA, alter DNA and, and extended life expectancy? How do I get that to Sodom and Gomorrah? He's alluded to it in several studies, but never stated where he gets it. Uh, and thank you. Okay. Uh, quickly. This is the question of why is Sodom described by God as exceedingly wicked? Who's describing Sodom? God is descri- describing Sodom. So God says Sodom is exceedingly wicked. What does exceedingly wicked mean to him? That's what you have to do. So what, how do you approach that? I need a definition. I need God's definition of exceedingly wicked. Because that's what he says Sodom is. Where do I go? Obviously, God has printed out a dictionary of his terms for us. It's called the Bible. All I have to do is find where has he used it before. God uh, uses it again in 1313. So where has exceedingly wicked occurred? It just so happens that Genesis 13.13 is the very first mention in the Bible of exceedingly wicked. And it's assigned to Sodom. So I don't get to use exceedingly wicked someplace else uh, before Sodom. But non-coincidentally, the first mention of wicked, wickedness, is at Genesis 6.5. So I have have Genesis 13.13 equals Genesis... 6 5. What's going on in Genesis 6? Yeah, that's where the Nephilimic mutations are. If Sodom has old men who are exceedingly wicked, Genesis 6 has the Nephilim of old. Great evil in both instances require that God intervene. Does God remember that he called the conditions of Genesis 6 wicked? And did he remember that he called the... Uh, conditions in Sodom exceeding wickedness. Which one is the most wicked? One got flooded, the other got blown up. Fire. One had somewhat of a warning. They had time. The other had no time. Boom. Which is the most evil? Genesis 6 or Sodom? You decide. Submit your papers. Test on Friday. Great evil in both instances that required destruction. Does God, again, remember that he called the conditions of Genesis 6 wickedness? Or is he leading us to connect Sodom to Genesis 6? Does the rememberer, Jesus Christ is the rememberer identified in Genesis 8, 1, Luke 23, 42, Hosea 7, 2, Genesis 9, 10 through 15, Christ the rememberer, God the rememberer. Does he remember what, does Christ remember what he said at Luke 17, 26 through 32? Of course he does. He remembers all things. Okay, so the question becomes, how are Genesis 13, 13 and Genesis 6, 5 connected? There has to be a relationship between the two. They are the first two mentions of wicked. Wickedness in Scripture. And I think Christ remembered that when he wrote it. Because he's the Word. He's the author. He's the invisible made visible. Okay, so now it's time to start the lecture. Which is about slavery. 
That's where we are, which is actually what I've just been doing. Now I have to erase it. Oh, she, oh, oh, I take a picture. Okay, moving over here. Thank you. We are so technologically astute. Now I can erase it. Oh, wow. Good, thank you. I forgot Worcestershire sauce. Huh? Oh, we could have done it, but... Yeah? But I, I don't... You know, that's a good point. We could have done that, but I didn't think of that because I don't have a phone, so they can't catch me. I didn't. I could have asked you. I didn't think of it. Why didn't you think of it and interrupt me like you normally do? <laughs> where, where, where is Jenna? <laughs> oh, I know. I see. I see Daniel with the with the baby again. This is some kind of maneuver. You're aware of that, right? Yeah. I didn't see you come in. We even said if Susie's here, we'll ask her to do it. But we, I never saw you. You must have been late, huh? Okay, not my fault. All of what I've just been talking about, and I, I really hope you can see it, but maybe you, you, it'll all take a little bit of time, is slavery. That's what I've been doing all the way up till now. So I'm not really starting. I'm finishing. And let's see if I can support what I just said, tie all the ropes together, which I've never done. Good luck with that. Okay. In the pre, prior two to three weeks, I've put a bunch of stuff. Out there. Genesis. What's that? I'm having trouble hearing. Oh, 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 since this is infinite? Yeah, yeah. I can. I, I'm doing it. I'm adding into infinity. Does, if I add things to infinity, does it become larger? Gosh, I hope not. I hope that is... A, <laughs> okay, I have put Genesis 14. You might remember that this is Shendorle Omer and Melchizedek. How's that for spelling, huh? Let the record show the whole audience, both of them, burst into joy and applause. And the king of Sodom. And of course, Abraham. But those are, not to take anything away from Abraham, he makes a wonderful decision there. But this is really about Shedolaomer, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom. And what happens before, after, and during this meeting with Melchizedek, king of Sodom, and Abraham. So then we went to Exodus. Uh, 21, 1 through 11, and that is, uh, the servant plainly says. And you may remember me saying that this is a extraordinary, it says, S-A-Y-S, this is an extraordinary, I can do Shedor Leomer, but I can't spell says. This is where, this is a picture of Christ here at Exodus 21, 1 through 11. It is a servant who 
who submits to slavery because he loves his master and he loves his wife and children. And that has been described eloquently, not necessarily by me, by great theologians uh, throughout time as a picture of Christ. He is the servant um, and that is a, the, the wife or the bride of Christ and the offspring. Uh, then we then completed Exodus or tried to complete Exodus. We didn't really do it. We finished it out in some sense, uh, 12 through 26. This is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Uh, the kidnapping death sentence. So it, there's a kidnapping and that results in death execution. If you kidnap somebody and sell them into slavery and we have this this equality uh, which was heretofore unheard of in that culture or that world at the time, where instead of taking somebody's life because you uh, he knocked out your tooth, you would only get his tooth. So there was a re- there was an equity and retribution. We brought up in First Kings. Um, 1912, where God identifies himself as the whisperer. He is not a clanging bell. We are the idiot clanging bells. He whispers. He is the still brook. Ah. Then Genesis 1, 29 through 31, which is the dependency on food. Dependency, dependency, there it is, on food and the image of Adam. Adam made uh, in the uh, image of God. Dependency. And of course, that was there's all dependencies. Oh, and, and God calls this very good. And I made the case last week that very good is a picture of Christ. Okay, so that's where we have been. And up here in Genesis 14 is where the possessor of all things is. So let me put that up here. Christ is identified possessed. Did I get that right? Good for me. Possessor of all things and um, ownership. Ah, Trying to get in a hurry here. Yeah, it could be Alzheimer's, which is my word that I've invented. And so I get the benefit of that economically. Ownership is in Genesis 14. First, God is described as a possessor of all things. And then I have this contest, if you will, this this uh, this battle over who will own people. That is the first place in the Bible where slavery has brought to the fore. Satan wants to own human beings. But God describes himself as the possessor of all things. So you see this ownership conflict there. Uh, again, Exodus 21 is about slavery. Exodus uh, 21 in both places about slavery. So that's why that they're on the board. 
God's whispering becomes very important. He whispers to us. Why does he whisper? He doesn't shout at us at all. He doesn't scream. Now, there's a few times where he has a loud voice, but they're unique in Scripture and they need to be assembled as one unit. And we have this dependency on food. So that's where we've been. I've added to that. I don't have time to put it on the board, but I'll just do it now. The New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, is New Jerusalem, the city descending, has a relationship to the death. Let me ask you this, physical death. How many souls, how many living souls have died since God created how many? How many breathing, living souls, eternal souls, nefesh kaya, have died? Does Jesus Christ remember all of them? What does that have to do with New Jerusalem, the city of New Jerusalem? I'll put it on the board. Not spiritual death, physical death. I told you that we have 200 intrinsically linked, 200 sextillion stars in the creation. That's two followed by 24 zeros. That's how many stars he has made that we can estimate is probably triple or ten times that. Because we're what? Humanity. We're idiots. We estimate there are 20, or I'm sorry, 37 trillion cells in the human body. How many molecules per cell? Does God keep track of all of that? Does he remember every single molecule? Use your phones if you need to know how much you got there. So that is in addition to the information that we've added today. Today we added time. The most favorite of all the Cliffsidian subjects said no one ever. The Bible is written from the perspective of Isaiah 46, 9. This is how this ties together. I'll read it for you because I am a professional and I can get to it in a half hour or less. I'm already in Isaiah that's a big step. I should get one of those Bibles that has the little tabby things, but they cost a dollar more. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. That's what he says. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. The implication is, is, is that to God, all time exists. It has to. He's outside of time. He sees time as a whole. He is the rememberer of all times. How many seconds to an hour? This is third grade math now. How many hours to a day? How many days have we had? How many seconds has God remembered? And what happened in each one of those seconds? We had this discussion a while back. A molecule moved or a cell moved. Does God remember all of that along with his 200 sextillion stars? 
He sees time as a whole. He's the remember of time and everything that happened in time. We and angels and animals obviously do not see time as a whole, though we, we can't transport ourselves into the past. That's the idiocy of Hollywood. The past exists. God observes the past and the future. Notice I left out present. How fast is the present? But the past exists and God observes the past and the future. In order to have a present, you must be who? He is therefore the absolute observer of all things. Therefore, his perceptions cause existence. Something that I've come to call the absolute observer effect. Because he observes it, it has existence in the sense that it has come into being. We're not necessarily a living being, a rock, as opposed to a human. Or And it is of great value to realize that the Bible is written with the knowledge that the author who wrote the Bible knows that all time exists. And that is proof of who wrote your Bible. And hopefully then you begin to understand what this means if all time exists. For example, our current subject is what? Slavery. Ralph just fortuitously happened to write about slavery. So did Sherman. Because Sodom and Gomorrah is about slavery. Stealing. God addresses the evil of stealing. He addresses the evil of stealing another living soul. And he does it from a frame of reference that is outside of time. So when God is talking about slavery, he is outside of time discussing it. In the sense that his observational frame is from the overview of all of time as a whole. And he is doing this, he's speaking about slavery to us. We are inside of time creatures. So are the angels. So us being inside of time and him being outside of time, he's communicating with us, but yet he remains outside of time. Does any of that make sense? When you read the Bible, you have to know that's how he's doing it. The Bible's amazing in that, again, whoever wrote it knew, wrote to us, that time exists. All time exists. And I think it is of the utmost uh, to uh, know, have this understanding. Our frame of reference, our location is not his location. We have a tendency to think that he has our location. He does not. We never have his location. What do we call that? People who think they have the same location as God. What do we call them? Blasphemers. So we have to consider then the impactive force that accompanies this basic of all truths of Scripture. Again, this is Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Right there it tells you that time has a, uh, all time exists for someone. I am God and there is no other. You don't get to be God in any way. 
I am God and there is no one like me. I've heard hundreds and hundreds of men and women stand up and say, I can do this. I am like God. Stand nowhere near them. Jesus Christ says that he is the Isaiah 46, uh, 9 through 10. He says it at Revelation 1, 8. He declares that he is the beginning and the end. He says it. I am the beginning and the end. And, and we have to read, and this says exactly, declaring the end from the beginning, verse 10. It's almost word for word. He inverted the end and the beginning is all in, in Isaiah. And we have to read his scripture, his word, knowing the differences. Our thoughts are not his. Our thoughts are never able to be his thoughts. There is none like him. His thoughts, his voice, his words speaks into existence living souls, matter, space, energy, and time. And he did it from a void, zero, nothing, which is infinity, and it is spiritual, non-physical. He is the owner, the possessor, therefore, of Genesis 14. He is this guy. He's the one that owns and possesses everything. He's the owner of the possessor of everything that he's made. How much has he made? All things. So he owns all things. What's going on in Genesis 14? We make nothing. Energy or matter cannot be created by us. We manipulate his things with his consent. We manipulate a cake. How many of you made a cake today for the buffet? You didn't make a cake. That's illogical and wrong. You manipulated things that he made into a cake. We cannot create matter from nothingness. That's void zero stuff. Okay, let's go into a slightly different direction, ever so slightly, as we run out of time. When a man steals another man and strips that man of his will and reduces that man to his property, in other words, he makes that man a piece of property, from whom has he stolen the man from? Is that proper English? Probably not. might be a preposition in there or something. From whom has the stealer stolen from when he steals a man? Who owns the man? So you're stealing from the owner of the man. And the man says in the Eighth Commandment, don't steal. Slavery is the stealing of a human being, of a living soul that extends to the animal kingdom. Nefesh Kaya, see me later. Elijah D. Buckner, The Immortality of Animals. By the book. Powerful. Who owns the animals? Let me repeat it. When a man steals another man and strips that man of his will... And declares that man to be the property of himself. From whom has he stolen the man? How great a sin is that? You're going to go steal a man, a living soul, from the owner. And declare it to be a what? Declare the living soul to be what? Non-living. Property. Non-material. 
I'm sorry, material instead of non-material. If a, a, how great a sin is that? Imagine now, if you will, if a stolen human being is a, subjected to experimentation. It's going on in this country constantly now. How great an evil act is that? Is that exceedingly wicked? How great is the wickedness? Genesis 6, Genesis 13, 13. What is the theological statement when a man reduces another man to property? Property is non-life as God defines it. I have property and I have non-property. In the sense I have material and I have non-material. Property is a rock. It, it is soil. It is not living. What is the thief saying to the true owner when he does this? Why does God whisper? Why does the whisperer whisper? Because that's what he does. Why doesn't he scream or shout in a loud voice? Oh, he does. When does he do it? Next week, more rope to tie together. I need to know who's playing the bagpipes, who's playing the trumpet, and who's playing the drums. We have to have that. <laughs> oh, big play. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to have inspired you, whether I did or not. You must rise and be dismissed or you get no chicken.